fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News and to talk about gardening and designing with my friend Caitlin. Hmm, a little less bleak than usual. <laughs> yeah, just a little. A pinch, a pinch less bleak. I mean, it's still going to be kind of blink once we get into it, but uh, we'll leave it ambiguous right now. How are you, Caitlin? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm really excited for this week because it's uh, my union. We're starting bargaining, which I guess we'll get to later in this episode. And I am ready to kick some employer ass. Hell yes. And on that note, too, hell yes to Bolivia last night telling the CIA to go fuck themselves. (laughs) But now we'll just jump right into it. Let's get into the Imperial Roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. This is what happened on the Rebel from October 12th to October 16th. For Thanksgiving, Ezra plays a bunch of clips from new Rebel correspondent Drea Humphrey. Ezra plays in full a clip she made connecting Black Lives Matter with witchcraft. We have covered this segment and another video that she has made that was uh, anti-mask propaganda on our Friday streams. And you can now check those out on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, and the links can be found in the episode descriptions. We'll also be doing more of these streams every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitch. So thanks, Ezra, for giving me this opportunity to promote our show. Ezra praises Rob Ford as being a true man of the people. He doesn't focus on anything that Rob did. Ezra just points to his human failings and weight issues as reasons for why people find him relatable and why the elitist underestimated him. The only reason Ezra is talking about the late Rob Ford is because Ezra wants to say his brother sucks by comparison. After all, Rob would never call anti-mask protesters yahoos like Doug did. It is amazing that one dismissive gesture towards anti-mask protester is enough for Ezra to think Doug is a conservative sellout, considering all the terrible conservative things he has done that Ezra has praised in the past. Jim, I hate this person's last name, (laughs) Kara Halios, who was booted from the federal conservative leadership race, and his wife, Cambridge MPP Belinda, who ran for the Conservative Party, but is now an independent after she was expelled from the party by Doug Ford by voting against extending COVID-19 emergency measures, have together decided to create a new party that will change the progressive, or that will challenge the progressive conservatives in Ontario. They offer no plan, they have no other members, but given Ezra's new turn against Doug Ford and Ezra's approval of Belinda's not supporting COVID emergency measures, He seems all in for the new party idea. Several times this week, Ezra has played a clip of a health official talking about 50% false positive tests in COVID testing. We have already gone over this. The test referred to in the clip is an antibody test and not the standard nasal swab test. But also the mere fact of a 50% false positive rate would not mean that COVID isn't bad or isn't actually spreading. David Menzies hosted the show Friday where he wanted to discuss the increase of left-wing violence. His evidence that the left-wing is violent is the fact that activists like to swear at the menzoid 
whenever he starts to harass them. How do you feel about gender selective abortions? How do you feel about you? Suck a Can you air any of this? Suck a butt. You can't. You can't articulate your points better than yelling. I just don't want you to be able to post any of this online. You butthole. Suck a. He also discusses an incident where an anti-mask protester had coffee thrown on them, an incident where someone kicked the phone out of an anti-abortion activist's hand, and also the milkshaking of Andy No in Portland. I'm not going to discuss the relative merits of these actions or whether they were morally justified, but when Proud Boys are beating people in the streets, right-wing militias are plotting to kidnap and assassinate governors, and anti-maskers are so damn selfish they are willing to jeopardize the lives of others instead of wearing a goddamn mask, forgive me for not being upset by a milkshaking that occurred over a year ago. The Menzoid chats with Andrew Lawton about new COVID restrictions. Lawton talks about how the WHO is against lockdowns. This claim has been surfacing online lately and comes from a single WHO official named Dr. David Nabarro, who argues that locking down is not to be recommended because of the economic effects. The WHO itself does not have an explicit recommendation or whether or not to lock down, since the decision to do so is going to depend on a lot of factors, but even Nabarro argues that lockdown should not be the primary means of dealing with the virus. In other words, wear a mask, distance yourself, and maybe locking down won't be necessary. Andrew ends by saying he doesn't trust anything the WHO says anyways. Great. <laughs> that, that is the week. <laughs> <laughs> On October 15th, Ezra gives his entire show over to an interview with someone named Brian Lee Crowley. Crowley is the managing director of the right-wing think tank, the McDonald Laurier Institute, and has recently written a book called Gardeners vs. Designers. I'm curious, although I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is, but have you ever heard of Brian Lee Crowley? No. Neither have I. I I hadn't even heard of the McDonald Laurier Institute before. Uh, It's a think tank, very uh, much alike the Fraser Institute, which is where Ezra got his start. Yeah. And so, you know, they're a bunch of conservatives that have access to uh, conservative politicians and come to them with like, we have a bunch of expertise. Listen to us when you're shaping policy, basically. That kind of bullshit. Okay. Yeah. The interview begins with Crowley describing the motivating force behind writing the book. He says he heard a politician, and he goes, it was possibly the prime minister, lamenting about racism, misogyny, and homophobia in Canada. And Crowley's response was to say, that doesn't sound like the Canada that I know. (laughs) He then describes people who think that Canada is a problem that needs to be fixed. So he's like, those people who see racism and homophobia everywhere, they see Canada as a problem that needs to be fixed. And these people are called designers. And he's like, what Canada really needs is not to be made up of experts with their top-down tinkering, but it's about like people who end up uh, from the bottom up constructing society, or what he calls the gardeners. So that's... That's in his title, Gardeners vs. Designers. And at first, I'm like, that doesn't sound too terrible to me. 
like I'm I'm a bottom up type person. Like I can approve of that idea, right? Okay. But <laughs> we'll get to it in a bit. But Ezra then tries to tease out like the garden metaphor a bit more to like sort of get at what Crowley's trying to say here. And so Ezra goes, is this about like gradual change versus like big over the top change? And Crowley responds that it's more like the gardener is someone who realizes that they're not in charge of the garden, that there are some things that the gardener cannot control. And therefore it's an argument about humility. He then expands the metaphor out and he says that plants have their own energy, their own intentions, similar to people. And he thinks that the designers see society as a machine that they can then pull a lever and get people to do whatever they want. But people have their own plans. So when a designer comes in and tries to solve the Canadian problem, they have to remove people from the equation because they get in the way with all their plans and desires that they have. How are we doing so far, Caitlin? <laughs> you following? <laughs> Is this like a new age metaphor? <laughs> I feel like one of those people, like you've just got to put out your intentions into the world and the world will like, you know, manifest your intentions back to you. I really think, <laughs> no, I mean, it is kind of weird that he said that plants have intentions. <laughs> uh, I think it has more to do with, uh, you know, people have desires, and therefore you shouldn't come in as a, a, a like a dictator style and start telling people what to do. So his idea is like you should allow people to have the freedom to do what they desire to do, right? It's a very deeply conservative notion here. Okay. But the problem is like this metaphor is, that is conservative, it, or is it like more libertarian? Well, yeah, very libertarian. But uh, I was putting them both in a, a similar camp there. But I would say that this garden metaphor is pretty terrible and does not help. <laughs> does not, does not help elucidate what he's trying to get at. Like I don't know about you, but like, does is gardening about realizing that you can't control the plants? Well, um, <laughs> for me, it is because I suck at gardening and I've killed almost every plant I've touched. <laughs> but there's some pretty fucking good gardeners out there so i don't know <laughs> if that's a really relevant metaphor to everyone well i'm trying to think like gardening is to some extent like a very top-down approach i mean there, there's certain things that like yes plants have certain biological capacities that no matter what i want to do as a gardener i have to respect the fact that like i can't grow this plant in this type of soil or something like that right but yeah. on the other side, it's like you, you're going to like you have control over the soil and over this and this. And so like you can basically arrange your garden how you want and provide enough nutrients and do stuff like gardening is all about control, and including like breeding the plants and designing plants through a selective breeding to create the like different crops that you want. And like <laughs> so it's just like it's such a silly metaphor when it's like gardening really is all about top down in my opinion not really bottom up or or whatever the hell he thinks is going on there yeah but they they get so ezra wants to tease out a bit more so then ezra wants to go topical and asks crowley to apply this metaphor to the economy 
And Crowley, like, scoffs at this idea that you can plan an economy, right? Like, oh, you can't plan an economy. He's like, doing planning an econ- economy will just frustrate the desires of everyday Canadians. And so his example here is, uh, so he gives this example for why it would frustrate Canadians. And that is this transition from an oil economy to a green economy. And he goes, you can't, he's like, you can't just like take those people out of the oil economy and throw them in the green economy when they want to do like oil stuff. (laughs) And this, I don't know about you, but that seems like obviously stupid to me. And I'm curious, like what you think, like as a, as as someone who thinks more socially, right? (laughs) Do you think that it's impossible to just take these oil workers and put them in the green economy or what do you what needs to be done to do that i guess you would need to have like some sort of like education retraining program that would give them like ability to like go to education and not have to spend the money to do retraining into different fields that's that's my thought and it seems like what he's getting at is like some people have some sort of like, again, innate capacity or innate desire to just be oil workers. And therefore, if you come in and be like, we're going to retrain you or get you into another career, that you'll be frustrating my like innate desires. More more like how like the plant, like you can't change the plant. <laughs> it's going to do what it wants to do. You got to let you got to let the human being just do what it does at any type of like top-down tinkering by retraining or, you know, just like once an oil man, always an oil man. (laughs) Yeah. But this is a lot of the conservative rhetoric, almost like your job is innately a part of who you are. Yeah. Like there's, I hear this a lot where it's like you grow up and you hear like, you got to find your dream job and you or or you have to find your talents and skills and then make your job out of those talents and skills. So you never work a day in your life or just doing the things you love all the time. Cause who the fuck loves working on oil rigs? Like, I don't know. That was like, and my thing is like, you know, the only reason people are working those jobs, most of them, like, I don't want to speak for every single person, but most people are working those jobs. Not, it's like, they're not doing oil jobs for the sake of doing oil jobs. They're doing oil jobs because it gives them money and food, <laughs> like, you know? So like the job is a means to like another end, you know? No, I know, I know that. That's Which, why it's just so silly. Like you don't ever hear a fucking five-year-old be like, I'm just <laughs> going to work in the oil rigs. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's my destiny. <laughs> and it does feel like a very libertarian idea because it does remind me of Ayn Rand in Atlas Shrugged. Like the character is just like, I'm a railroad person or I'm a steel person, and they were just like born innately to do this thing, and they just have a love of the craft, and they get so involved in it. It's who they are, and how dare the government try to dictate what I do? It's hilarious that that's a libertarian notion because it also sounds like semi-religious. Yeah. Like almost like God instilled these these gifts and immediately made me this person. So therefore I am this person. Yeah. It can it can also manifest itself in like a deeply scientistic worldview too. That's in, true. In yeah. terms of like biology as destiny or like these evolutionary psychology type thinkers, right? Oh man, it would be so cool to do like a research pro- pro- project on like job essentialism. 
They can always talk about like gender essentialism and like racial essentialism. This essentialism towards the idea of like a career or job or even talents is just insane to me because I hear it so fucking often. And it's actually, no, it's really annoying, especially I think for our, for our generation and, uh, you know, the, the upcoming generations as well, because you're constantly being bombarded by these boomers who fucking tell you these libertarian lies of like, you can be anything you want. If you dream it, you can be it, right? Like find what you love and do it and you'll never work a day in your life. And it's just like, that's not the fucking truth of how the world works. That's just not how capitalism works. If I wanted to do whatever the fuck I want to do, I'd be in fucking communism and I could wake up <laughs> the one and then the philosopher the one day, like, you know, Marx, he said, but that's, <laughs> that's not what's happening. So that's, it's just this hilariousness of like almost making it sound like this magical process of choosing a job. Yeah. And then when you find that job, that's what you were always meant for. Or it's like even when you hear people who are really talented and you just forget all these other social factors that went into the fact that brought them to be that talented, like wealth and social social capital. And the people are like, oh, they were just born to be this. And I'm like, no, they weren't. They had fucking mommy and daddy's money that helped them do all these extracurricular programs that got them to that level. Which actually fits in, like, I don't know much about Crowley's past, but, like, if you're, Crowley is someone who can create a bunch of think tanks and somehow has all this influence and got a PhD and all this, and it's like, Crowley is one of these people who <laughs> was a product of the of his own circumstances. You know? Even even as a PhD, I hear a lot of people being, oh, you must just be so naturally smart. I'm like, no, I'm not fucking naturally smart. I've been given enough privileges and opportunities compared to other people to learn things. But they just didn't get the opportunities to learn. Yeah. Or I've had a certain set of like social experiences, whether luck or not, that have just brought me to this path. And I've shaped who I am as an individual. I wasn't naturally born this way. No way was I done. Uh, was I like that? It is weird, though. Like a lot of the things that you're saying, I have experienced on the periphery of things that people say. But this kind of like direct appeal to some sort of like essential capacities has come up several times on the show more directly whenever he has one of these think tank people on the program and like that's it's like weird because i never came into contact with that it it being so explicit like this you know oh i heard this but you even hear it from like teachers as small children maybe you haven't heard it like you can't remember but i'm sure when you're in like kindergarten or something your teacher told you stuff like you know, these people are like this because they were just born to do that job. Or this this is all they can do. Yeah, I guess so. Like, that's, to me, pretty explicit. They're not directly saying, you know, Timothy was born to be an oil rig worker. But, like, <laughs> they, they are saying, like, it, go, and, go into their job because they found their calling. This is a very, very barren analysis now that I think about it. Well, but anyway. Well, I was going to say, like, maybe I haven't heard it in, like, that sort of, like, Cause it's usually always about like people who get into the arts or something or, or just have some sort of like natural talent at like dancing or playing guitar as opposed to like oil rig worker. <laughs> how many times, okay. How many times as you as like a PhD introduce yourself as a PhD and then people just like assume you're all these characteristics and things because you must have all those personality traits or all those talents in order to, for you've gotten to a PhD all level. The time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
Now, think if you, someone went and met someone who, you know, did like, like, for example, my father does construction. People have all these characteristics and assumptions of who he is because they're like, oh, only someone with these characteristics will innately go into these kind of jobs. Like I hear all the time, oh, well, you know, your dad just wasn't attentive at school. You know, he he's very athletic. So, of course, he's going to do a hard labor job. It just makes sense. When I was like, that's not the fucking truth. He came from Italy and was poor as fuck. <laughs> yeah. And didn't have the opportunity to do half of these things. So what are you talking about? Like, uh, that's just, yeah, there's, there's just things that are so interesting about this, like, job essentialism. Like, I don't know what else. Maybe there's, like, a more academic term for that. No, but, I, like, I like, I like, I mean, because my enemy is essentialism. So I like framing it in that term. <laughs> yeah, like, there's just something essential about you getting into a career or a job. Like, this is your destiny. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> no, exactly. It's It's kind of bizarre it's so bizarre. It's weird it's weird because it tells you that there's no way to like train yourself like it it kind of like is this argument that like people can't change but it's like of course of course you can change or else you wouldn't have educational centers in like you know what i mean like what would be the point of education if people couldn't like educate themselves into a different interest you know? yeah 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 but it's even like goes okay so like even I'm sure maybe growing up, maybe not if your parents do, they sound a little more progressive than <laughs> a lot of parents I know, but you, yeah, you yeah. hear from your like friends or, or even your own like family, own family members, this idea of you need to have a dream job. Yeah. And if you don't get that dream job, then you're going to be stuck in this kind of job. Right. I mean, I've and that's, there's something, there's something essential about that. Like as if there was this job that was magically made for you, that you're just going to magically fit in and become one with the job. Yeah. I guess like to me, that sort of like story was told differently, I guess. Like there's similar, similar components to it, but like the way I was told it was kind of like, it, like it, it just, you'll find whatever makes you happy. And if that happens to be something like that changes over time, then it changes over time, you know? Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't told in this essentialist manner that like, uh, you know, there is the one true job within you that you <laughs> you have to uncover. It's not you know, like, it's never that explicit, but yeah. they'll say things like, you know, you got to dream and believe in yourself and you'll do what you want to do. Or like, you know, you were just born, born naturally for this talent. And that's what you were always meant to be. Yeah, but you got like, who, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm now like going into like, but who honestly believes that? Because like anyone who worked any fucking job has got to know like, it's hard to find small, yeah, work small the jobs children. that you love and to like, you know. Small children, small children yeah, believe that. And so they buy into it. And then they, and then you or get the to privileged a, people like Crowley that end up in think tanks and now get to dictate to that to everyone. <laughs> that's true. There might be a certain level of privilege. There's actually a book. Um, I think the author's, I'm going to say it's a French last name, Leroux, I think is her last name. I might be saying it wrong. Um, but David Grusky, who's a really pronounced um, sociologist, edits the book and it's unequal childhoods i think it's called and it's basically about child rearing activities yes. among um different class class groups and different racial groups and what this author concludes is that a lot of middle and higher class students their parents tend to child rear them with this idea of like you can dream and be anything you want 
But of course, the reality is, is parents are giving them amples of resources. And in fact, what this author found was that these children were becoming extremely burnt out because the parents would force so many extracurriculars, books, uh, uh, tutoring on the children to be phenomenally talented. But then she would get into these working class and poorer families where the parents were even discouraging their children from actually dreaming and being anything bigger than someone in the working class. Yeah. And so you saw this huge gap between child rearing among parents and the success of even their children, because you would see that children would commonly get let down or not feel like they can achieve. Yeah. And, and, and they're not getting the proper context for why that is like the social circumstances that, that lead to this. <laughs> This book does a really good job, like describing the neighborhoods, describing like even how children play differently, describing the parents' backgrounds, doing individual interviews with the parents and talking about how they got into their their life situations. And it's a fantastic book to read. But it just goes to show you that there's nothing essential about the positions. A lot of times, (laughs) no, but if you're to compare other studies with other, I guess, like more Now, I haven't seen oil specifically, but I've seen people who worked in factories. A lot of times, like, people get put into these positions because they were from working class families where they didn't have the resources to do anything else. They didn't have access to education like another, you know, middle or high class student or child would have had. And in Canada, these jobs make great money. And so now it's more about the functional purpose of getting into these careers to make Uh, money and eventually have a family of their own and then some of them say I hate the job but I got into it because it was good money and now I'm kind of stuck because I you know got married started having kids and now you know this is what I do and again like I I don't know about oil rig workers and I'm sure there's probably some research out there on this topic especially I know um, several who left Ontario to go to Alberta to work on the oil and uh, fit fit exactly what you just said (laughs) Yeah, there's this there's this article called Hanging Tongues. Uh, I can't remember the author who wrote it. It's an academic article, though. And he did an ethnography and in-depth interviews with um, butchers that worked in a... Not butchers, but um, factory workers that worked at like a... Animal processing plant? Animal processing, yeah. processing, yeah, plant. And he was just talking about how like, dirty and awful the work is and just wanted to gain the perspective of these workers. Like, why have you stayed in this so long? Yeah, and the conclusion was that a lot of them just ended up in like a trap. Yep. You know, they didn't have the resources to go to school. There was nothing left for them. This at the time was um, giving them a lot of opportunity for for uh, monetary benefits, right? Yep. So they took it, and then eventually, like I just said, they have they started getting married, had kids, and they're just then trapped the, in this job now. Exactly, because leaving the job now becomes its own risk. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I think when we're talking about oil workers, yeah, this solution is that you would need to give them some sort of like educational credit for them to retrain themselves. Now, so I guess like I'll transition from this to like what what Crowley's solution is, right? So if you had this problem of like global warming, right? So global warming is a problem and he's saying that this top-down approach won't work, right? This idea that you come in and you just take these people who are essentially oil workers and you start throwing them in the green jobs. None of that will work. And so then the question is, well, what what would be a good approach then? 
And this is all he says. He's like, the solution would be instead to cultivate the garden such that everyone is valued and given the opportunity to produce what they are capable of producing. And I'm left what? going, how does that solve global warming? <laughs> right? So like, Sorry? <laughs> I feel... I feel like what he's describing is sort of like after the long conversation that we just had, what he's describing is a perfect scenario where people are not sort of pushed around by all these social circumstances, right? Such that they have the opportunity to do whatever they want to do. But we don't yeah. live in that world, you know? And even and then part of me is like, even if we were to like try to create the world that he's talking about, it wouldn't magically happen because you can't just remove the social factor from the equation ever. You know, like not everyone has the, the ability to move from one place. Like unless we reach some sort of like socialist utopia <laughs> where everything is taken care of such that you have the freedom and mobility to choose whatever occupation you want without like being uh, exploited for it. It's not. Yeah. I mean, it's not really. It's not really the communist picture that we hoped for, Jody, where like, people could wake up and, you know, not be exploited and do the activities and labor in the way that they want to labor. Right. But like, I don't think it's going to go to that. But like here's so, for example, Ezra then goes that this reminds him of the fact that this idea of cultivating the garden and that'll somehow get rid of global warming or something reminds him of the fact that America lowered its carbon emissions, not by some top down design, but by the tra transition to fracking from whatever came before it. And it's like this idea that as was going like, look, see, you just let people do what they want to do. And then good stuff magically happens. <laughs> and Crowley like agrees with this. And like, even if it were true, so let's ignore the fact that, you know, whether or not fracking is less of a carbon uh, problem <laughs> uh, compared to whatever it replaced, right? Let's just ignore that. But, like, when you just let things happen, it won't necessarily, like, turn out good. Right? Like, no. they're just assuming, like, let just people make decisions and then somehow magically the world would be a better place. And, like, this, like, gets back to, I don't know if you've ever heard of the tragedy of the commons. No, but this is this is a, a common sort of like thought experiment involving economics, which has to do with the fact of like, say you have a bunch. Here's a, here's like a good way of explaining it. Say you have a bunch of farmers and all these farmers use a common resource, a stream. Right. So no one owns the stream. They all own their land. But like if you overgraze or stuff like this, it might pollute the stream and that'll affect everyone who uses the stream. Right. So. Everyone has an interest in wanting to keep the, the stream alive, but they have an individual interest in like overusing the resources, which will then pollute the stream and ruin it for everyone, right? But of course, if like one person does it, it'll only pollute the stream a little and it'll be fine, right? But then that means that everyone will have the incentive to like want to use it in that way, right? Because okay, everybody yeah. wants the money, right? So it's, it's this collective action type problem which is that no one wants the river to be completely or the stream to be completely polluted, but everyone has a self-interested reason to pollute the river. Yeah. 
And <laughs> the the usually the moral to this story is that these common goods, like the stream, need to be regulated by, say, a government such that, like, our individual interest doesn't kick in and ruin the stream for all of us. That's usually the picture that's painted with this. And this, like, I, I've, I went out of my way to, like, find some other stuff that Crowley wrote because I found some of the interview wasn't as clear as it could be. And I found an article that he wrote on the COVID-19 problem. And we'll go, we'll get into that in a second. But I wanted to like quote this passage from it that really gets to this like completely ignoring an obvious tragedy of the commons problem, which is that, so he writes this. Progressives love the idea that everyone else will drop their stubborn attachment to their selfish priorities and sacrifice their narrow vision for the common good. But what they usually have in mind is that the rest of the rest of us should give up what we want and pursue what they want instead. So he's saying you can't just like what what's happening here is these these uh, designers at the top are coming in and telling you what you should want when it's like maybe that happens sometimes. But most of the time, it's like, say, in the case of COVID-19, the designers are saying maybe we should all wear a mask such that we don't all die from a global pandemic, right? And then if you go, well, I want to die from a global pandemic. <laughs> like, <laughs> at some point, I got to say, like, maybe you should want not dying from a pandemic because your choice here is affecting me, right? Yeah. It's, it's such a selfish way of, like, visualizing the world. Like, how dare anyone tell me what I should or should not do? You know, which, again, gets to the whole conservative notion of individualism and all that shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's also this just like fear that if the government takes in, you know, we're going to get be a completely socialist country all of a sudden. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Even though that's not entirely true. <laughs> yeah. Crowley's next movie is like to talk about like epistemology, which I thought was interesting. And he makes a point I've heard before, although he makes it in a really stupid way. And that is this idea that an individual expert is limited in their, their capacity to know things. And he argues that knowledge is a complex distributive property. And what that means is that e so even though uh, each individual in a society might only know a little bit, Together, they know quite a lot in how to like okay. accomplish things. Whereas an expert has a very narrow like expertise. And so they don't know a lot. It's not distributed like it is amongst the people. But based on this, Crowley then concludes that therefore you should just let people do what they want because their collective knowledge is somehow better than this like narrow knowledge that the expert has. <laughs> and I'm like this like starts to get really stupid because in in terms of problems like COVID-19 or global warming like let's take a, like farmers like do, do you think any farmer out there has like uh, <laughs> knowledge about epidemiology no right so even, to an extent <laughs> that they should right maybe they have like general ideas but they're nothing close to an epidemiologist 
Right. And so it's like sometimes like some person's narrow expertise is so specific that no one out there will have their specific knowledge that could help solve a particular problem. And Crowley just seems to like be like, nope, that that's not how it works. <laughs> and he sort of explains this by saying, like in this article, he goes, public health experts and epidemi epidemiologists and microbiologists cannot also be experts on the thousand other areas of expertise on which a robust response to a, t a pandemic relies. How to make testing kits, manufacture vaccines, supply personal protective equipment, design tracking apps, run logistic chains, or the thousands of other things that are, that may be needed. And, <laughs> and part of me is just like, based on what he's describing here, which is this idea that you can never have experts and you can never have like, I don't know, multiple experts working on all these different issues within government is like, how do companies manage multiple tasks all at once? How does, yeah, anyone, that's true. How does anyone do any of this? Like, yeah, <laughs> we we've worked in a union. We didn't have all all knowledge, but you delegate tasks. You work it out. You figure it out, and that's how you like you create a knowledge network such that you can lean on certain people that can also help you. Right? Yeah, it's, it's not. It doesn't rely on a single expert. No, I know. And then the other part of me is like, what does what what does Crowley's opinion have on like bosses? right? Why not let companies self-order themselves from the bottom up? Don't, co don't workers collectively know more than the CEO? Why have the CEO make any decisions at all? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Why do CEOs make any decision at all? Why are they just collectively owned by the workers? These are questions I wonder myself, Jody. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, like, again, his garden merit, like, the garden metaphor does not work for him. I feel like secretly this guy, if you just didn't say it was socialism, would agree with the concept of socialism. But he doesn't like at the end of the day, he doesn't because it like the line stops at the point where as soon as as soon as you have uh, some sort of collective telling other people what they should or should not do. Right. Because like in his mind, it's not it's not about collectivity. It's a, it's like the collective knowledge is this like inert thing that shouldn't be used by collectives. It's just that each individual has this little bit of knowledge, and just by doing their own individualized, individual desire, personal interest stuff, it somehow will automatically just make the world magically better. How would you have a society? <laughs> What is society then? You don't have society. You just have individuals with their own interests. <laughs> you would literally die if that was the case. You would die. You wouldn't even function as a human being. Let's say you're just an individual doing your own individual thing, learning your own individual stuff on your own. You would literally just not function as a human being. <laughs> well, what happens, and they kind of like touch on this, which is like they touch on this idea that uh, sort of like order arises out of this, right? And there's some like uh, truth to that, where it's like if you have, you might not have uh, regulations on shipping routes, but like shipping route patterns may emerge by like things like the cost it takes to drive the thing versus the fastest route to get there and stuff like this, right? So patterns can emerge out of like this chaotic individual action type stuff. 
But the, yeah. But the th- the thing to me is is like that doesn't mean that like society doesn't have a purpose or that like rules and like other plans don't have purposes because like that's like the point of putting in place laws or governments that then like constrain what people can do and those like those contours that you put around the chaos also shape the patterns of how society turns out right but they're like Crowley's basically arguing to like have no laws and just let like order emerge out of like the random interaction of all these people but at the end of the day, I want to say, so I, I guess I'll wrap up with this. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, who is Crowley? He's a man with a PhD who somehow has a ton of money, who created his own think tanks. The current think tank he directs has a banner on their website celebrating 10 years of thought leadership, which, <laughs> which I want to say, you know, leaders of thought, like experts. <laughs> And these experts work closely with the conservative government, including Crowley, who has access to every newspaper in the country to publish his bullshit. So experts are excerpts of his new book are in both the Globe and Mail, the National Post and all kinds of other uh, newspapers around the country. He even got the full show on Ezra's podcast. So usually Ezra does an opening segment and then a conclusion uh, with an interview. And Ezra just gave the whole show to this Brian Crowley person that I've never heard of before. And he's there all to tell people not to trust expert knowledge, (laughs) even though he's presenting himself as an expert. (laughs) And I want to say this whole appeal to some sort of abstract folksy working class we as somehow superior to those progressive ivory tower they is just another clever ploy by the actual elite moneyed interests in this country to disempower people by saying that the collective we is smart only when it isn't organized, which is not true. We are way better when we're organized and fighting these assholes. Speaking of fighting these assholes, Caitlin's going to tell us about her local bargaining. Yeah, so I'm excited to announce for our proactive segment that I am going into bargaining with my employer, Western University. We are starting that on Wednesday, so I'm really excited about this process. <laughs> and you're, you're on the bargaining team, correct? Yeah. Fun times. This is and this is for the teaching assistants position, right? Yeah, it's for for graduate teaching assistants. Um, but just to keep in mind for everyone, we have Bill One Twenty Four, and it's really fucking up our bargaining. Like we can't ask for anything over one percent, and that's not just wages; that's including any tor- any kind of monetary benefit. So, like, we have health benefits that we can't get more than a 1% increase on, uh, mental health funds that we can't get a 1% increase, over a 1% increase on, and other other funds as well, which just really fucking sucks. Yeah. Because, you know, people people really need a wage increase because the rate of inflation has gone up astronomical. Even rent prices in London, Ontario, where I live, has it's just exploded in the last 
in the last um even the last months since COVID. Yeah, months. Yeah. So it, we really needed that wage increase, and that's just not going to happen based off of Doug Ford's fucking legislation. Yeah. So, you know. And it is interesting to see how this plays out because I just saw uh, maybe a couple of hours before we started recording that uh, a college in Ottawa, their OPSU members are going on strike and they're mainly going on strike because of this legislation that you're talking about. Yeah. I honestly uh, couldn't say if that would be the outcome for us. Yeah. I don't have any opinion on that stuff now, but like, nor do I think I can give a statement no. about that at this point in time. <laughs> no, to be no, honest. I, I, I don't think that like that solution is the solution to go, but it shows you how uh, desperate people are because of this bad legislation. That yeah. Willing to throw it all in the line. Uh, and I mean, I think because of COVID, it's completely been forgotten about all the <laughs> shitty, awful policies the conservative uh, government has put into place in Ontario. Yep. But for our Ontarian listeners, like, you know, let's <laughs> let's try to mobilize a little more about these issues because they still exist. And I think since COVID hit, we've totally forgot about the austerity agendas that the Ford government has released on us. Yep. And it's just completely gone ignored, but it's still affecting our everyday lives. And I've tried and we'll keep on trying going forward to keep raising that awareness because uh, now that Ezra is against Doug Ford, it's always worth reminding that like even even last week's episode, I think I brought up the uh, free speech policy on campus that was not a free speech policy that Doug Ford was trying to uh, get through and got through. Yeah, like there's all these things that he's done that is still terrible that I worry that his legacy got a slight bump because that he wasn't as bad as Trump due to COVID when I actually have problems with how he handled COVID as well. But like, I think his image in the public is seen more positively now than it used to be. And that worries me considering all the shitty things that he did before COVID. Exactly. So, so keep it up. I hope you get everything. Uh, it is worth noting that the last time that uh, PSA 610 was bargaining, that is when Caitlin and I met. <laughs> this is when a beautiful relationship blossomed. Yes. So uh, yeah, I hope it all goes well. And if COVID isn't happening and you need bodies on the ground, I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's way too far in the future, right? Like we haven't even really care. started. We're starting it now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> bringing it down <laughs> if you enjoyed what you've heard so far please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news if you want to stay informed about what we're doing you can also find us on twitter at imperial news with a z we have a private facebook group called imperial news we also have a discord set up and we'll be doing twitch streams every friday at 8pm you can find all the links to our social media stuff in the show notes. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striatom.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening, and remember to treat your people like plants by allowing them to photosynthesize when the sun is out and to change the pH level of their surrounding soil to promote growth. Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields?